Now, in Luke chapter 6, we're following what we call the Galilean ministry of Jesus. It's that teaching that he did all up and around the region of Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. It was an area thick with cities and villages, and there Jesus is doing his work in and through the city, or excuse me, the region of Galilee. Now, as a part of that work, we find that he runs into controversy with the religious leaders. And the first couple scenes that we're going to cover tonight in Luke chapter 6 have to do with controversy regarding the Sabbath that Jesus runs into with religious leaders. So let's jump right into it, verses 1 and 2. Now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the grain fields. And his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Do you have the picture? There's Jesus and his disciples. Now, by the way, I just want to point out to you, up to this point, he has not chosen the 12. That's going to happen a little bit later here in in Luke chapter 6. So this isn't necessarily just the 12. It's just a group of people following as his disciples. The, the, the broader group of Jesus' disciples numbered more than just the twelve. In any regard, there's this group of his disciples following after him. And as they're walking, they're walking through some farmers' fields. And there they are, the, the stalks of grain are on either side. And what do they do? Well, they're hungry. So they grab some of those heads of grain. They take off the head. They, they twist it underneath their hands like that. And they blow away the chaff. And they pop it in their mouth for a little bit of wheat germ right there on the go. Very organic, very green. The disciples were into that. Now, nobody should think for a moment that this was theft. This was completely permitted under the Mosaic Law. This idea of going through and as a traveler passing through, they were permitted to take a handful here and a handful there. It was no big deal. It was part of God's mercy and grace and sort of the law of compassion that that is given to us in the law of Moses. But but the issue wasn't theft. Notice what they say here in verse 2. Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? You see, the problem wasn't with what they were doing. The problem was the day on which they did it. They did this on the Sabbath. In other words, the grabbing of the head of grain, the twisting it in your, rolling it in your hands, the blowing away the chaff, the religious leaders considered that to be work and a violation of the Sabbath. Now, you may know something of this, of the, of the Jewish law, because it continues among observant Jews to this day, that the Sabbath... That is, by the Jewish reckoning, from sundown Friday night till sundown Saturday night, that approximate 24-hour period is a period where they say no work can be done. And this was given by God in the Old Testament. Now, we understand the Sabbath because of the new covenant in light of the fulfilled work of Jesus Christ. And so, ladies and gentlemen, for us, every day is a day of rest in Jesus. It's not that we have no Sabbath. It's that every day is a Sabbath, even though we violate the principle of the Sabbath. In other words, a regular day of rest, one day in seven at least, as, as a, a, to our own peril. But that's another subject entirely. Here I want to get to the controversy with the Pharisees. What was the controversy? It was simply this. Your disciples are working on the Sabbath. Maybe it's say, well, what kind of work is that? They're, they're not, how much work is that just to, you know, grab a snack along the way? 
Well, this is what you have to understand. The Jewish rabbis, in their zeal to observe the Sabbath, constructed an elaborate list of do's and don'ts all around the Mosaic Law. So it wasn't enough just to say, okay, now don't do any work on the Sabbath. It was to build this whole structure to say, this is exactly what work is, and this is what work isn't, and to define it that carefully. When the disciples did what they did, in the eyes of the religious leaders of that day, they were guilty of at least four violations of the Sabbath. Number one, they were guilty of reaping, they were guilty of threshing, they were guilty of winnowing, and they were guilty of preparing food. That was four violations of the Sabbath in one mouthful. And so they were outraged at this, the religious leaders. Now, this same zeal for the Sabbath can continue to the modern day. I I remember reading a story. It's from a long time ago. It's from more than 20 years ago. The year was 1992, but similar things happen all the time about a story of something that happened in Jerusalem. There was a fire from some apartments in an Orthodox neighborhood in Jerusalem, and three apartment buildings burnt to the ground. Why did three apartment buildings burn to the ground? Well, because there was a fire just in one apartment building. And what did the people do? Well, they didn't rush out and call the fire department. They got their rabbi, and they asked the rabbi, is it lawful for us to call the fire department on the Sabbath? Because in the Orthodox Jewish mentality, when you uh, break a switch or connect a circuit on the Sabbath, you're doing work. Okay? That's why you don't switch on lights on a, you don't push buttons on an elevator on the Sabbath. And so they had to get the determination from that. Is it lawful for us to call the fire department on the Sabbath? And in the time it took the rabbi to figure that out, this fire spread to two other uh, apartment buildings. Now again, this is just the kind of thing that happens. And in that day, in Jesus' day, many rabbis filled Judaism with elaborate rituals relevant to the Sabbath and the observance of other laws. For example, on the Sabbath, this is what they taught. They taught that you could not tie a knot except in a woman's girdle. Therefore, if you had to lower a bucket of water into the well, you could not tie a rope to the bucket. But you could tie a girdle to the bucket, and then the girdle to a rope, and then lower it down. Do you see what this all extremely fine parsing out of the laws does? It makes for elaborate ways to break the law. And that's exactly what, in the eyes of the religious leaders, the disciples of Jesus were doing at this point. So here you are, disciples of Jesus. You guys are breaking the Sabbath. What is Jesus going to say on your behalf? Look at it right here, verse 3. But Jesus answering them said, have you not even read this? Well, could you just stop right there? This is great. Do you understand who he's speaking to? He's speaking to the Pharisees. Sometimes I think we should spend a whole night just talking about the Pharisees. Because you and I, you know, like those old melodrama, you know, plays, and everybody knows when the bad guy comes out, you know, he's got the top hat and the snidely whiplash, little, you know, mustache, and everybody hisses, you know. Well, that's what we do when the Pharisees come out, right? Boo, hiss, ooh, you're the bad guy. Let me tell you, the Pharisees, we would have a much more ambivalent love-hate relationship with them. Do you want to know something about the Pharisees? They were the the back-to-the-Bible movement. They were the ones who took the word of God seriously. 
Now, they were also filled with legalism. They were also filled with, with weird, uh, you know, workarounds to the spirit of the Word of God. But at their core, especially in their origin, they were the ones that said, no, we're not going to go along with the course of this sinful world. No, we're not going to believe what all those liberal theologians believe. We're going to believe the Bible, and we're going to believe it literally. So this is sort of a challenge to us. Because, you know, we're closer to the Pharisees than we want to think. Sometimes in good ways, but sometimes in bad ways too. Okay, but back to the first line of verse 3. But answering them, he said, Jesus answering them said, have you not even read this? So this is what he's saying to the leaders of the Back to the Bible movement. It's something like this. Hey, do you guys even read your Bibles? Could you imagine how angry they would have got just as that? It's like Jesus saying, hello? Do you guys open up the book ever? Haven't you read this? These were men who had memorized substantial portions of the Old Testament and considered themselves experts not only on what the Scriptures said, but on what Rabbi so-and-so and and Rabbi so-and-so and and all these different commentators through the centuries had said about the Word of God. They considered themselves Bible experts, and Jesus just sort of treats them very coldly. I I wonder if he said it with a smile on his face. Hey, do you guys even read this book? Let me explain it to you. And as their blood pressure rose, look what Jesus said to them. Jesus said, What David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God and took and ate the showbread and also gave some to those with him, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he said to them, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Now Jesus, in this brilliant way, he's going to argue that the Pharisees were wrong on two points. Here's his two points. Mr. Pharisee, Do you even read your Bible? Well, if you did, you would know you're wrong on two points. Let me explain it to you this way. Number one, don't you understand the principle given to us by what David did when he visited the tabernacle, when he was on the run from King Saul, and he didn't have anything to eat for him and his men, and he asked the priests if they could have some of the showbread. Now, the showbread was the sacred bread that was dedicated to God First at the tabernacle, later on at the temple. It was set upon a golden uh, table, and it was changed out every day. It was a representation of Israel's fellowship with God. There were seven cakes or loaves of bread set upon... Seven? Did I say seven? Twelve. Why did I say seven? Twelve loaves or cakes of that bread set upon that golden table. One for each one of the twelve tribes of Israel so that everybody would know that the people of Israel were to be in this continual fellowship with God, eating bread with God, sharing a meal with Him. And since they changed out the bread every day, David said, here's a supply of bread. My guys need bread. Give it to us, please, priests. And the priests, after making sure that David and his men had observed some kind of ceremonial purity, he said, fine, David, take it. Now, there's some indication from the original text there in 1 Samuel 21 that this happened on the Sabbath. And this is what David is, excuse me, David communicates to us through that story in 1 Samuel 21, is here's the principle. Human need outweighs ritual observance. Human need outweighs ritual observance. And so, it's entirely valid for my disciples to go and eat some of this grain because even though it might break some of your interpretation of the Sabbath, 
These guys are hungry, and they need some food. Now, by the way, maybe I should point out, if it's not clear to you already, the disciples did not break the Sabbath. I believe that if the disciples did break the Sabbath, Jesus would have been front of the line saying, guys, don't break the Sabbath. Because Jesus observed the Sabbath as a good Jew who fulfilled the law of God perfectly in every way. No, the disciples did not break the Sabbath. They broke the human interpretation and the human scaffolding surrounding the law of God. They broke the laws and the commandments of men, not the laws and commandments of God. But that was the first principle. Number one, human need is more important than religious ritual. Which, by the way, without going into a big... Isn't that so important for us to remember? I hope there's nobody here this evening who who passed by a human need right there in front of your eyes that you could meet because you were so busy to get to church. Isn't that exactly what happened in Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan? There the priest was on his way to Jerusalem. And what he said, well, I can't stop and help this guy. I'm a priest. I've got to go do my work at the temple. The Levite came and passed right by. I'm a Levite. I got work to do at the temple. I can help this guy. It was a violation of this essential principle. Religious ritual does not outweigh human need. And that's what they needed to hear. But then there's another principle. And if you thought they got mad before when Jesus said, hey, do you guys even read your Bibles? Did you see what Jesus said to them right there at verse uh, 5? It is. He says, The Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. This second principle was even more dramatic. Jesus said that he was the Lord of the Sabbath, and therefore, well, ladies and gentlemen, that is an outright claim to deity. Um, You know what? I'm the God over the Sabbath, therefore, I pretty much know when it's being broken and when it's not being broken. Don't worry about it. Can you imagine that? I can imagine the Pharisees just having a case of the vapors when Jesus said, Oh, heavens, did he just say that? I can't believe that he said that. Listen, Jesus said, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And if my disciples' actions didn't offend me, then you religious leaders should not have been offended. Ladies and gentlemen, this was a clear claim to deity. Jesus said that he had the authority to know whether or not the disciples broke the Sabbath because he was the Lord of the Sabbath. Only God is Lord of the Sabbath. So this was, this was a remarkable claim. All right, now scene two, shifting to verse six now. Now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught. And Okay, let's just stop right there with that. Now... Luke shows us the rising resistance to Jesus and his followers. They're becoming less and less popular with the religious leaders. Nevertheless, Jesus still attended synagogue service and did not forsake the gathering together of God's people, even when he had reason to. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? Well, I I won't go and meet among God's people. No, it's... It's too awkward. It's too difficult. Listen, they, they were very angry at Jesus. Can you imagine all the eyebrows that got raised when he walked into the synagogue? But he still went. And what was waiting for him there? Look back now. Now, it happened on another Sabbath also that when he entered the synagogue and taught, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. 
So the scribes and the Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. Can't you just feel the tension in the synagogue? Jesus walks in, and there's all the religious leaders. And Jesus, as he did always, Jesus had perfect peace. Do you think Jesus started getting all uptight when he walked into the synagogue? No. Oh, but these religious leaders, they're about ready to have a conniption when Jesus walks in. But you see, they've set it up, and they may have even set this up deliberately. They may have arranged it deliberately that this man with the withered hand would be there on the Sabbath day because they knew something. They knew that if Jesus walked in and saw human need in the synagogue, whether it was on the Sabbath or not, that the compassion of Jesus would be there ready to reach out to that man and make a difference in his life. They just knew that Jesus had this habit. And I wouldn't doubt it for a moment. If the religious leaders didn't set this up, if they didn't arrange it in an effort to sort of trap Jesus. I want you to notice one other thing. It says there in verse 7 that the scribes and the Pharisees watched him closely whether he would heal on the Sabbath. The religious leaders watched Jesus closely but with no heart of love for him. You know, we can watch Jesus but still be far from loving him in our hearts. So what happens here? The stress is building. There's the man with the withered hand. Now this poor man, he's sort of caught like a pawn in the midst of it. I, I, in my mind's eye, I see the religious leaders, you know, kind of shoving the guy in the back towards Jesus. Come on, what's Jesus going to do about this? Come on. Sort of like they're tempting Jesus or putting some bait in a trap for him. What happens? Verse 9, then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy? And when he looked around at them all, he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he did so. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. Isn't that beautiful? First, Jesus thinks this. He goes, okay, the first thing, I've got to speak to these religious leaders. These guys who are pushing the man with the withered hand right out front, and are using him as a pawn in their little game. I need to rebuke them, and I'll rebuke them with a simple question. Here it is. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? That's in verse 9. You see, in this question to the religious leaders, Jesus emphasized the truth about the Sabbath. There is never a wrong day to do something truly good. How simple is that? Oh, no, no, no. This man had his life forever changed for the good, profoundly healed, a a debilitation that had been in his life for some time. And by the way, Dr. Luke notes for us that it was in his right hand, his hand of skill and work. It probably kept him from doing work and producing a living, or at least an efficient living. And this man had all these problems related to his withered hand. And in one instant, Jesus could heal it. And they're all hung up on, well, you're doing it on the Sabbath. You see, in the legalistic approach taken by the religious leaders of Jesus' day, which, by the way, went far beyond the commands of the Bible itself, they clearly neglected acts of compassion and love for the needy. It would be something like this. If you said 
and I'm just making an illustration. I don't even know if this would apply to the Jewish scheme of things. So I'm, don't just kind of take it out of that. Just use this as an illustration. But if somebody would say, hey, let's go and, and, and let's do a great big program today where we feed the poor and minister to the needs and bless them and hand out a lot of things and do good things for them. And somebody said, no, 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 you can't do that on that day because it's the Sabbath. Well, as I said, it's just foolish. There's never a wrong day to do something so good. Now, this is very interesting to me because Jesus was emphasizing the need to show love and compassion and not just be obsessed with the rule book, so to speak. Here's the point in our day that I find so challenging to us. We have the challenge of displaying God's love and compassion and faithfully upholding God's clearly stated moral standard on matters of social controversy. There's matters of social controversy today having to do with the unborn, having to do with sexual orientation and practice, where people should just say, look, the most overwhelming thing that you should just be is nice. That's the only thing that's interesting. And you know what? We should be filled with compassion. We should be filled with love. And we need the wisdom from God to say, here is the biblical standard that we cannot vary from Now, Lord, show us how to show that and how to display that in a way that respects the love and the compassion of your heart. Not to compromise on those principles. No, ladies and gentlemen, the Bible says what it says. But I want you to notice this about the Sabbath particularly. Jesus wasn't trying to reform the Sabbath. He tried to show that in their understanding of the Sabbath, they missed the whole point. You see, a legalist wants to debate the rules But the point wasn't which rules were the correct rules. The point was, what is the basic way to approach God? And ladies and gentlemen, when we emphasize the idea that the basic way to approach God is based on what we do for Him, then we're legalists. If we emphasize and if we think in our own mind that the basic way we approach God is based on on what Jesus Christ did for us, then we have biblical Christianity. You know, we find it very easy to, um, you know, pat ourselves on the back for our lack of legalism. Oh, no, 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 we're not legalistic. Listen, legalism is a thing that runs very deep in the heart and the soul of a man or a woman. There are many people who cannot simply receive the fact that they have peace with God through the work of Jesus Christ because they demand to earn it on their own instead of looking to who Jesus is and what they have done and then letting the good works and the obedience and the walk of holiness flow out of that. It's a very important principle. So what did Jesus do? Verse 10, we can go back to that. What did he say to the man with the withered hand? Stretch out your hand. Isn't that marvelous? The man had an, look, I don't know exactly what the medical diagnosis would be for withered hand. Let's say it's paralyzed. Jesus told a man with a paralyzed hand, stretch it out. You you wouldn't fault the guy for thinking this, "Um, Mr. Jesus, if I could stretch it out, I wouldn't need your healing. Thank you very much. Don't you realize that's the entire problem? It's paralyzed. I can't stretch it out. 
It's very possible here that Jesus commanded the man to do something that was impossible in his current condition, but Jesus gave both the command and the ability to fulfill it. And that man put forth the effort and he was healed. You know, Jesus does a very similar work in your life and my life. He, he calls us to live lives of obedience to God. And I'll use a word that might sound old-fashioned. Maybe some of you young people need to cover your ears at this word, holiness. I'm glad you didn't cover your ears because you need to hear that word. No, that, that great word, holiness, living a life that's separate and honoring to God. And here's the thing. God calls us to live this life of obedience and holiness on us, and He does it knowing full well that we're unable to do it. Is it really within you to live such a life? No. But here's the thing. As we simply put forth the effort as the man with the withered hand did so, we will find that God works in us to do what He commands us to do. And it's a beautiful thing. He gives us the ability to obey Him, if we just simply rely on Him and abide in Him, to use a biblical phrasing, and stay close to Him. Now, verse 11 is one of the most fascinating verses in the whole chapter. I just want you to stop at the end of verse 10 and think in your minds, Hooray! This man's arm is healed! Isn't that great? I mean, a public healing right there in the synagogue... You would almost think that a cheer would go up among the people. Be Yes, this guy, he's not dependent upon the community for support anymore. He can earn his own living. His hand's great. He just keeps moving it back and forth. It's great. It's great. It's great. Look at it. He's so happy. Everybody's so happy. Look at the religious leaders in verse 11. But they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. You just let that sink in for a moment. They were filled with rage that Jesus did good on the Sabbath. They started plotting his death. How bizarre is that? How bizarre is it to look at such a thing happen before your eyes and then whisper to one another, we got to kill this guy. Ladies and gentlemen, don't underestimate the hardness of heart that can come to people even in the midst of religious ritual. You know, Jesus often rebuked the religious leaders of his day for this kind of heart. Let me just rattle off some verses to you from Mark uh, chapter 7. He says this, Laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition You make the word of God of no effect through your tradition. That's pretty radical. That's what can happen when religion goes off the rails. All right, so two events here, both centered around Sabbath observance, both emphasizing the growing uh, dispute that Jesus has with the religious leadership. Now, would you look with me what happens in this next session, starting at verse 12, where Jesus is going to choose the 12. Now, it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose 12, whom he also named apostles. Look at that in verse 12. It came to pass in those days that he went out to a mountain to pray. 
Jesus was at a very critical point in his ministry right about then. He had offended the traditions of the religious leadership, and they began to plot his death. The the political leadership, and we know this from Mark chapter 3, the political leadership also began to plot his destruction. And great crowds were following him, but, but they weren't necessarily interested in spiritual things, and they could be very quickly turned against Jesus. You could say that this was a time of rising danger, of rising intensity in the ministry of Jesus. And in response to all of these pressures and changing situations, what did Jesus do? Well, the first thing he did is he says, I got to get myself away for some special prayer. Now, I suppose that Jesus prayed constantly, but for this particular need, look at what he did. It's right there in verse 12. He went out to the mountain to pray. Now, I don't know where exactly he went, but if these things took place at the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, which seems to fit, we can't say absolutely, but not far from those northern shores is a mountain from which you can see all over the Sea of Galilee and the surrounding regions. It's Mount Arbel. And maybe that's where he went. He went up there. He secluded himself especially. Why? Well, I think for a lot of reasons. He did that so that he could pray uninterrupted. Can you imagine how many times Jesus got uh, interrupted in the midst of prayer? So if he wanted to pray uninterrupted, he had to get off far alone. He also probably did it so that he would have the opportunity of pouring out his whole soul. I hope you like to talk when you pray. And you know what? Sometimes when you pray, and you pray with a full heart, and you're contending with God about something, Do you ever get in those heated conversations with God? I I don't know. There's just something animated about it. And I think Jesus wanted the liberty to do that. He wanted the liberty to really hash it out with God and to really talk. So he went out and separated himself. And he wanted to seek the mountain to do that. And being alone out on that mountain, he continued all night in prayer so that he could choose 12 among the disciples who would become his apostles. Now think about it. As Jesus was about to choose those disciples, in one sense, there was nothing more in Jesus' three years of ministry that he did that was more important than this. I'm leaving out of that the cross, of course. If you leave out his great work on the cross, which was really the greatest thing that he did, but apart from that, you could make the argument that there was nothing more important than what he did right here, right now. Because these were the men to whom he was going to leave the work to. Jesus was going to ascend to heaven and leave the work in the hands of some particular men, and it would be these men that he chose right now. No wonder he spent all night in prayer about it. Lord, what about this guy? Lord, what about him? And what about him? And uh, there's so many, but what about him? And getting guidance and seeking God and doing it. Now, please understand that this shows us that Jesus was God, but he did not simply use his infinite knowledge to pick the disciples. Instead, he prayed all night like every other struggle that Jesus faced. He, by the decision of his will, he chose to face this as a spirit-filled man so that you, as a spirit-filled man or woman, could know that you could seek God with the same fervency and God would come and meet you and guide you. So what did he do when he was done with that? Verse 13 says, he called his disciples to himself. The disciples belonged to Jesus. They were his 
disciples. By the way, isn't that true? Disciples never belong to any man. Disciples belong to Jesus. And do you know what that word means, disciple? It's a learner. It's a student. But it's very interesting because it doesn't have in mind just the idea of a classroom, although that's vaguely included. But the idea of being a learner or a student in the biblical conception of a disciple, there's a personal connection. You're a learner attached to a teacher. And this, of course, is the master himself, Jesus Christ. And these men said, no, we will be your disciples. Verse 13 says, from them he chose 12. Jesus chose 12 apostles because this was the foundation of the new, the new work that God was doing. And just as Israel had 12 tribes, Jesus would also have 12 apostles, and he named them apostles. Apostles means sent ones. There were general disciples who followed Jesus. There were the 12 disciples who were also called apostles because they were, if you were, special ambassadors or special emissaries of God's work. Right now, verse 14. Here are the apostles listed. Simon, whom he also named Peter and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. You know what fascinates me about this list of the apostles? Think about it. How little we know about these guys. Now, a few of them you feel like you know. Who do you feel like you know? You know Peter. right? Oh, yeah, I know Peter. You feel like you know something of John, too. Maybe a little bit of James. Thomas, you feel like you have an introduction. A few of these guys... Bartholomew, anybody? You go, what? There's, a, there's more than a few guys on this list. You go, I have no idea. Who are these guys? And this is something significant. These men who had an absolutely essential role in God's plan of the ages, their fame is mostly reserved for heaven. Now, they are extremely famous in heaven. The Bible says that on the foundations of the new Jerusalem, there's 12 foundations, and upon every one of those foundations is written one of the names of the apostles of the Lamb. Which, by the way, is a side point. I'm looking at the clock to see if I want to make this side point. Those 12 foundations there that make up the new Jerusalem, well, there's a big controversy because you know Judas isn't on there, right? No, everybody, Judas is not on there. So who's the 12? And lots of people say, well, the 12th verse replaced in Acts chapter 1 with a fellow named Matthias. But that rubs a lot of people the wrong way. And they say, no, it could not be Matthias. It has to be Paul. I don't know. When you get to heaven, that's going to be one of the first things you look at. You go run and look at one of the 12 foundations. Look at foundation number 12 and see whose name is written on there. In any regard, please notice, these men are all extremely famous but their fame is mainly reserved for heaven. I don't know if that sits well with you. I, I try to be that way in my own life. That's kind of the philosophy I want to have. You know what? I want to be very famous. I do. But, but I'd be happy with just a little bit of being known on earth, but being really known in heaven. That's where it really matters. That's where the equation really plays out. That's one interesting thing about him. 
The, the other thing is that this group includes some brothers, James and John, Peter and Andrew. It includes some business associates. Peter, James, and John were all fishermen. It includes some different political viewpoints. Uh, Matthew or Levi uh, was a Roman-friendly tax collector, and Simon was the Roman-hating zealot. And then, of course, it contains the man who would betray Jesus, Judas Iscariot. Jesus chose Judas knowing how he would turn out and that he would become a traitor. Now, it wasn't obvious to any of the disciples. Isn't that staggering to you? None of the disciples could figure it out. When Jesus got together with his disciples the night before he would be crucified, he said, one of you is going to betray me. And in our minds, we think everybody looked over at Judas. But no, nobody did. Nobody, got, nobody was wise to it. But Jesus knew all along. Jesus had a lot to choose from, but he chose Judas even among other people. And listen, Jesus wasn't looking for a guy to be edgy or controversial. There's no other great scandal concerning Judas during Jesus' ministry. Yet Jesus chose Judas knowing who he was and what he would do, but that God would allow and even use the great evil that Judas chose, and he would use it for great good. There's a story about a man who asked a theologian a question. He said, can you please tell me why Jesus chose Judas? And the theologian thought for a minute, and he said, listen, I can't tell you why Jesus chose Judas, but I'll give you an even bigger question. Why did he choose me? Something to think about. All right, let's, verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits and they were healed and the whole multitude sought to touch him for power went out from him and healed them all. Now, this is an amazing scene. First of all, notice verse 17 tells us that he came down with them. Who's the them? The disciples. In other words, Jesus was very much saying this to the 12, the disciples who followed him around. He goes, guys, it's a team sport from now on. From now on, everything that I'm doing, you're going to do it too. Just follow right along with me. And so I'm going to go minister to a bunch of sick and hurting and demon-possessed folks. You come right along with me. And that's what he did. He, he wanted them to work together as a team. Now, Jesus could have done it all by himself, but it was important to him to sort of, if I could use an expression, to push the ministry down and to get these other guys working in it and to train them and to equip them. Because even though they didn't know it, Jesus knew it, that in just three years he was going to, so to speak, toss the keys of the car to them. Here you guys go. It's yours now. They didn't know it, but he knew it. So verse 17 says that he stood there on the level place and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon People came from great distances to be healed and be delivered from demonic spirits by Jesus. And they even came from Gentile cities such as Tyre and Sidon. And did you see what it says there in verse 19? Just picture this in your mind. It says, the whole multitude sought to touch him. There they are. There's hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people crowding around Jesus, stretching out a hand. They go, I just want to touch him. It's like, 
It's like there he is, the, the, the embodiment of all of their hopes, all of their aspirations. And if I can just get close enough, if I can just touch him, then maybe Jesus will do something in my life. Now, in this scene and in this context, with all these people crowding around Jesus, all these... But by the way, wouldn't it have been frightening if you were Jesus? How would you like to have a thousand people crowding around you just wanting to touch you? I mean, people get killed in crowds like that. In the midst of that, what did Jesus say? He did something wonderful. He basically said this, and I'm paraphrasing. He said, let's have a Bible study. And that's what we're going to get into next week. The, the sermon that Jesus went over with these guys. And it's really engaging. It's really remarkable. Next week, we're going to begin, and I don't know how many weeks it's going to take us to get through it. Maybe we'll do it in one week, maybe a couple. I don't know. We'll just take it as it comes. This great message that we call the Sermon on the Plain. Because if you notice, verse 17 says that it happened on a level place. Now, many people wonder, is the Sermon on the Plain given on the same occasion as the famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And I think i got an answer for that question. But you have to come back next week to get it. I just want you to notice one thing here from verse 19. Did you see what it said? We'll close with this. Power went out from him and healed them all. Jesus not only had the power of God in him, it was also true that power went out from him as he healed them all. Now this, this is powerful. This is suggestive. This means that every time Jesus met a need, every time he ministered to somebody, something went out of him. And I'm not going to try to say it was like electricity or, you know, I don't know, some force field or anything like that. I just think it was just something in his own power, in his own exhaustion, from his own personality. Can you imagine how exhausted Jesus would be at the end of the day? Now listen, I think I know that when you really give yourself to spiritual ministry and giving out and touching people, whether it be, you know, to a group or to individuals, something goes out of you. But I can only imagine to a greater degree how Jesus felt this. And I remember that when the woman with an issue of blood touched the hem of Jesus' garment, and when she was healed, it says that Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, as Jesus served the needs of others in his preaching and healing and teaching work and all of that, something went out of him. It cost him something to be used of God to serve other people. There's two great applications for us to draw from that. First of all, we just stand back and we say, Jesus, thank you. Because with what you have touched my life with, it cost you everything. If you want to talk about power going out of him, will you look with me at Jesus on the cross? Look at every drop of blood that falls from him as power going out of him. Do you, do you believe, to, to coin a phrase, when we speak like this as Christians, we're speaking in idioms, we're coining phrases, but do you believe that there's power in the blood of Jesus? Well, that power went out of him. It went out of him at great cost. By the way, just to clarify, when we say we believe there's power in the blood of Jesus, we're not talking about his physical blood. We're talking about there's power in his sacrificial death. But, but it's sort of almost a poetic shorthand way of discussing that oftentimes people who are new to Christian circles don't understand. They can think it's very strange that we talk so much about blood. 
They say, is this a church or like a butcher shop or a blood bank? But no, do you get the point, though? First, we thank God that Jesus spent everything, gave everything from his being that we might be rescued from our sin, from our shame, our guilt. That means there's nobody who has to leave this room tonight full of guilt, full of shame, uh, unassured that you're right with God because Jesus is here. He poured it out for you. That's the one thing. The second thing, if you want to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, who not just learns of him in a classroom type setting, but actually follows him as a person, if you want to be that, and if you want to serve others, it's going to cost you something. Real ministry costs something. I'm not saying that's not fun. I'm not trying to say that it's miserable. But even in the enjoyment of good service of God, it costs you something. That's just something good for you to keep in mind and to embrace that. Say, okay, Lord, I'll bear the cost. As a man, as a woman of God, I'll bear the cost so that the work that you did for me, some of the overflow in my life can be passed on to others. Father, that's my prayer here tonight. I pray, God, That the power that went out of Jesus, especially, Lord, in the greatest example of that, that power that poured out of his sacrificial death for us, that we would be touched by it, that we would be healed by it, that, that we would be set free from any kind of demonic oppression by that power that went out of Jesus. Touch our lives with it. And give us a willingness, Lord, in whatever way you call us to, Give us a willingness to spend our lives for the sake of somebody else. Help us to do it, Lord, with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.